I'm speaking with the journalist Catherine Joyce. I'm speaking with Edward Ungueso Jr., the tech correspondent for Vice's Motherboard. A tech correspondent for Vice's Motherboard. Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual duo today. First, Catherine Joyce will update us on what's been happening on the far right. And then Edward Ungueso Jr. will talk about Silicon Valley and the latest AI miracle, ChatGPT. Thanks to LinkedIn, I learned that both are graduates of Hampshire College, something I don't think has ever happened before on Behind the News. Over the last year or so, we've seen a lot of fragmentation on both the left and the right. I'll leave the left fragmentation for another time, but on the right, we've seen the national conservatives and the Catholic integralists and the wayward Marxists all splitting and infighting like a gaggle of schisming Trotskyists. Who are all these people? What are they fighting about? Why has frank and violent anti-Semitism gotten so prominent? What's up with the Compact Gang? Here to answer those and many other questions is Catherine Joyce. She's an investigative journalist who writes regularly for Salon and is also a contributing editor at the New Republic. Catherine Joyce. Christian nationalism. What exactly is the modern iteration of Christian nationalism all about? Christian nationalism, in short, is believing, in the U.S. context at least, that America was founded as a Christian nation, oftentimes uh, an idea that America's founding was somehow ordained by God, and probably most importantly, that it should return to being a Christian nation in the ways that they define it, which often is uh, a white Christian nation. Yeah, now this has really come out recently. They, they're trying to be a little cagey about all this stuff, but then uh, Thomas Acord, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Let the cat out of the bag, right? Yeah, absolutely. That was a fascinating story. There has been this big effort recently on the right to sort of reclaim the term Christian nationalism as a term of pride, a, a label that they embrace. So especially in the last four months or so, you have seen a lot of people on the so-called new right making this case for Christian nationalism that was all over the, the National Conservatism Conference. There have been a couple of books uh, published in the last couple of months that are just explicitly arguing for that. One of them is by the Gab uh, founder, Andrew Torba, and the other was by this academic named Stephen Wolf, uh, whose book was titled The Case for Christian Nationalism. Wolf is also a podcaster, and this controversy erupted last month when uh, a number of fellow conservative Christians did some digging and found out that Stephen Wolf's podcast co-host, uh, a man named Thomas Acord, who ran a classical Christian academy, a private Christian school. Thomas Acord, it, it ended up, was running this pseudonymous uh, Twitter account where he was just expressing really explicit, vicious racism and a lot else besides that. Um, so that was quite a scandal for a movement that has been trying to make this case that Christian nationalism is good, it is not white nationalism, and lo and behold, they're half-step removed from the person making this case is his good friend and podcast co-host, who is very much a white nationalist. What about kinism? Kinism is weird. I came across the term kinism more than a decade ago, um, I guess like 15 years ago, when I was working on my book about the, the Quiverful movement. So this small, fundamentalist, Protestant, mostly homeschooling subculture that believes in having as many children as you can to take over the world demographically. And within this movement, there were big debates going on about this idea of kinism. It's basically an explicitly racist movement that you can find within reformed Christian Calvinist or neo-Calvinist Christian communities. So this goes back to the mid-aughts. And it's this argument that God has ordained segregation in all areas of life, the separation of the races and that this is a biblical, a divine mandate. So this came up again because this guy, Thomas Acord, was writing articles under his pseudonym for, in one case, a kinist website and in another, a neo-confederate website. 
As much as they would like to separate themselves from white supremacy, they really can't. These folks can't, no. I think it's notable that the two big books that came out this year on the right, making the case for Christian nationalism, one of them is this book by Stephen Wolf, which is kind of already within the text, towing up to the line, as a lot of people who have reviewed it have noted. Even very conservative Christians who have reviewed it, some of them have said, this is really troubling stuff, and this is not what we're about And the other example is Andrew Torba's co-authored book on Christian nationalism. Andrew Torba made a lot of news last summer when he became involved in Doug Mastriano's campaign in Pennsylvania. And it turned out that Torba and Gab, his website, were promoting tons of really explicit anti-Semitism. I'm amazed uh, to see the outbreak of really explicit and vile and violent anti-Semitism over the last couple of years. Was that under wraps? What prompted this emergence? Was it just like in chrysalis and now it just sprouted its wings? What's going on there? It's a good question. I mean, I think we've been kind of walking up to this line for a number of years. All of the rhetoric around George Soros that has been pretty prominent going back to to Glenn Beck and, and his Fox series, The Puppet Master. That was either 2010 or 2012. I mean, so that's at least a decade old. Globalist always seemed like a euphemism for Jews, right? Absolutely. Absolutely it was. And the idea of using metaphors like The Puppet Master is just a an extremely well-established anti-Semitic trope. But then I think, you know, when we're seeing things like Pizzagate and QAnon, how that's tapping into these other ancient anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, QAnon is basically recapitulating the blood libel. I don't know how you can have all of these deep-rooted anti-Semitic tropes and conspiracy theories floating around in kind of euphemistic terms. You're talking about the deep state or about globalists when you're using otherwise pretty much a carbon copy of the same conspiracy theories people have been talking about for hundreds of years without ultimately it it just crossing that line and people dropping the euphemisms and and just expressing really explicit anti-Semitism. I watched a video of uh, Nick Fuentes fulminating, um, which I think was embedded in one of your salon pieces. He's really introducing the idea with very little rhetorical distancing of violence against Jews, burning Talmuds. It goes from zero to 60, he says, no time at all. That sounded very frightening and threatening. It's extremely frightening and threatening. Fuentes is a provocateur. He delivered the whole thing with a smirk in his face too, which is weird. Absolutely. I mean, and kind of the same smirk that he used when he quite some time ago made an extremely vulgar and obscene kind of extended joke analogy, dismissing the number of dead in the Holocaust that people can look up if they want to. It's almost always delivered with a smirk when he kind of gleefully drops the N-word. It's delivered with a smirk. It is this far right what we used to call the alt-right ethos of getting attention via outrage. But it's also just opened the door and, and made anything that is slightly more to the center than making kind of an explicit threat of anti-Jewish violence um, seem reasonable by comparison. Yeah, it's, it's quite disturbing. What's their use of irony? What's the strategy behind that? This is an observation that a lot of people have made when they were talking about the emergence of the alt-right in 2015 and 2016 is this idea of ironic racism and how extremely offensive racist or anti-Semitic or extremely homophobic or extremely misogynistic language was used with this deep sense of irony that on one hand gave it this sheen of plausible deniability, like you're you're just not getting the joke. But on the other hand, is also just marking these sorts of bigoted beliefs as transgressive. This is a way that you can scandalize the libs and own the libs by by making them shocked by using this sort of language. So it, it appeals to to young people, to people who are finding their way or finding their voice and testing boundaries. There's always been some form of that for young people in, in whatever generation. And but, but this time it's making hatred the edgy thing that you can do to mark your distinctiveness from your peers or your elders or mainstream society. In that way, it was making all of these extremely bigoted views cool 
within this online milieu. And that's how a lot of people ended up talking about how things like Gamergate or other internet pylons served as this entry point that introduced people to one internet community and then pulled them deeper into it. That was Breitbart's kind of entire MO back in 2015-2016 was using this sort of quote-unquote edgy youth culture to radicalize people to the right. We're just seeing newer versions of that. What do you make of Trump hosting Fuentes and Yay? That, that was pretty shocking. I don't claim to have any kind of inside knowledge of that. I mean, it, it shows what a high level of platform these people who have been and should be extremely marginalized. People like Nick Fuentes should be on the extreme margins because the things that he are promoting are just explicit bigotry and, and violence against everybody who does not fit a, an extremely narrow conception of what an American is. That he was able to find his way to Trump's table, whether kind of because Trump is is continuing to make coded or no longer so coded overtures to these communities, or just because Trump got played in some way, it just shows an extreme advancement of, of these these ideologies on the right, like how far the extreme far right has gone in finding inroads to the Republican mainstream. Now, what about their relationship to Trump? Is he becoming somewhat obsolete? Is he something of a relic to this people? Have they moved on from him? God knows. Right now, he, he seems to be down, right? And there's so much more support in some quarters for for Ron DeSantis, but... I, that guy has more lies in him than a cat, though, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's pulled kind of incredible victories out of seeming defeat so many times. I'm I'm glad it's not my job to make predictions. National conservatism. You've been to their conferences. Um, what's happening with that crowd? It seems like this year's iteration of the national conservatism conference was less dynamic and less interesting than the previous years. What's going on with that gang? The big takeaway is that it may feel less dynamic. And also maybe that's because it is closer to mainstream power than ever before. The national conservatives or the NatCons were one pretty leading faction of the so-called new right that has been emerging ever since Trump upset the whole apple cart in 2016. So these are, you know, people who are trying to rehabilitate the idea of nationalism as, you know, not just okay, but a very strong virtue. And Christian nationalism, very much a part of that, uh, this year's conference made clear. There are also frequently people who identify as post-liberal in the way that Viktor Orban uh, in Hungary is post-liberal and describes his Hungary as, you know, an illiberal democracy. So they are breaking with the longstanding bipartisan norm of classical liberalism that supports a focus on individual rights and pluralism and also economically tends to, to support pretty hands-free free markets. And so they have taken issue with all of that, um, though focused a lot more on uh, their complaints about multiculturalism and individual rights. That has animated a series of conferences since 2019, where people have been pushing for a new Republican Party to reflect some of the changes that, that took place after Trump won uh, the nomination in 2016. Last year, uh, in 2021, I attended their second major conference, and I, I attended their third one again this past September. And one major difference was that there, there had been this effort to forge an alliance in 2021 between the NatCons and this other group of prominent intellectual post-liberals, many of whom are Catholics, many of whom identify with this movement of Catholic integralism, which in real short wants to subordinate state power to church power. Um, so they, they want to have Catholic ideas of what the common good is, inform the law, and for the government to be invested in making people virtuous, which has all sorts of implications that they're generally pretty vague about. In 2021, these two camps were sitting on the same stage together talking about how are they going to build this new Republican Party. This year, none of the integralists were at NatCon, and instead, at least half a dozen uh, speakers at NatCon were making fun of the integralists. There was this kind of real pronounced break 
that happened between them. One of the, the reasons why, from the integralist side, was they accused the NatCons of selling out the new right. They said that they were going to mainstream. They give as example of this that the Heritage Foundation had underwritten most of this year's NatCon conference, and they thought that they were just returning to an old Republican alliance, neoliberal economics and neoconservative foreign policy, that basically they're just putting the old pre-Trump right back together and that they are abandoning all of the supposed populist promise of Trumpism. That's been a fascinating break to follow because these are small groups in, in their way, especially the integralists, but I think they're kind of an intellectual vanguard. So what they're fighting about is the ideology that is going to shape the larger movements. Well, the Catholic angle is interesting because so much of the American far right has been based in Protestant fundamentalism, and a lot of those folks don't like Catholics very much. What, what's the relation of those uh, those two forces? That has been true, um, that there has been animosity historically between these different faiths, these different expressions of Christianity. But I think at the elite level, there have been collaborations and cooperation between conservatives who are Catholic and conservatives who are evangelical going back decades. Talk about the original so-called new right with Paul Weyrich and, uh, you know, eventually the moral majority. All of these things were formed pretty explicitly as interdenominational or interfaith partnerships. One thing that's interesting about right-wing Catholicism is that it has really always provided the intellectual heft for the Christian right. Um, it's provided a lot of the intellectual infrastructure and ideological infrastructure for movements that evangelicals went out and were the foot soldiers for. But many of the arguments were based in, in Catholic theology um, and were refined by Catholic intellectuals. I'm speaking with the journalist Catherine Joyce. I interviewed Adam Cusco, who's, a, among other things, a theologian who grew up as a fundamentalist. And he said that a lot of fundamentalist uh, Protestants of an intellectual bent read Catholic theology because there's so little of their own native strain of it that they, uh, they have to import it. There are these interesting kind of historical reasons for why Catholicism just has a deeper academic and intellectual, especially kind of in, in the legal fields, footprint. I mean, there are a lot of pretty high-performing Catholic universities and goes back to earlier days of anti-Catholic bigotry in the U.S. as well. But yeah, I, I think that that's totally true. I mean, I've read other scholars and and journalists who follow the religious right talk about how Catholics have long been basically the brains of the religious right. There are aspects of that that are definitely true. Now, we've been talking some about anti-Semitism, but the other thing that really is animating a lot of these characters is you know, the drag queen story hour and the obsession with groomers. Where'd that come from? How'd this become such an obsession with them? I don't think he was the exact first person to say it, um, but there is this right-wing advocate named James Lindsay, who was very active in hyping the anti-critical race theory panic last year. And he's he's the first person that I saw start to use OK Groomer as this joking play on OK Boomer on Twitter and just use this as a response, basically, to anybody who is defending LGBTQ rights or defending the idea that it's good for, for schools to represent diversity in teaching children. Um, and from there, it just, it really seems to have exploded. I mean, so that yeah, anything that is supporting the idea of LGBTQ equality or representation now gets tagged with this slur that we have always used to mean somebody who is grooming a young person into being you know, sexually violated. In that way, it is an extremely inflammatory label to be throwing around. And that is why the old Twitter was restricting its use as a slur against LGBTQ people. That language has underscored this idea that anti-queer bigotry or, or even violence is justified because this is this existential threat against children. I mean, if you start relabeling something that is about adult consensual relationships as a threat to children, you open up room for 
all kinds of terrible outcomes. And I think that's why we saw the violence that we did in June during Pride Month, you know, with Proud Boys going in and intimidating parents and children and pretty chastely dressed drag queens who are reading innocuous books in public libraries. Um, it's why we saw those Patriot front people uh, who put themselves in the back of a U-Haul van and they were going to go violently disrupt uh, a pride celebration in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I mean, there have just been so many examples of this. Well, it's even hit New York City where they, uh, they vandalized the office and apartment building of a, a city council member. Yes. Because he's gay and uh, was defending drag queen story hours. It's, uh, I, I just heard about that. One doesn't that. expect yeah. that in New York City, but it's happening here too. Yeah, Absolutely. It's it's really alarming. There is also the irony that I think a number of people who track this and report on this frequently point out that, you know, a number of the people who are involved in these homophobic and transphobic anti-groomer campaigns have their own records of, of sexual misconduct. To me, it's is, is another point of proof in, in the idea that so much of this stuff ends up being projection. And now as we're doing our tour of the post-liberal <laughs> scene here, the compact magazine people, you could dismiss this as just a, an obsession of a small band of intellectuals. Um, but I don't know, I find it kind of interesting. What do you make of uh, this compact formation and particularly Saurabh Amari? I reported on Amari and his different intellectual projects in, in both of the pieces that I wrote about the NatCon conferences. So the one last year and then also the one this year where Amari and you know, many of the people who are in his camp had broken with the NatCons over a variety of issues, a big one being their contention that the NatCons have sold out and they're not taking economic reforms seriously anymore. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Compact Magazine describes itself as this heterodox, radical journal. It publishes some positions that are on the right when it comes to social issues, you know, often pretty far on the right. And it publishes a lot of pieces as well about labor rights, about income or wealth inequality. Uh, you know, it talks about how Republicans need to be able to appeal to to labor movements and unions better. I mean, so it's occupying this pretty interesting space. And I went to this conference at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, this pretty beat down former steel town. And Franciscan University is one of the very most conservative Catholic colleges in the country. And Amari is a visiting fellow there. And he had organized this conference that ended up being sort of a rejoinder to the NatCon conference. The big theme there was how great the New Deal was, how disastrous unrestricted capitalism had been for so much of the country and particularly the Midwest that it was held in Steubenville, I think was pretty illustrative of that. And it was interesting. I mean, a lot of extremely conservative people there talking about wealth inequality and labor rights and making repeating old union slogans, not as jokes. <laughs> and I ended up in, in this, this big piece that I wrote for Salon in November, reporting on and kind of comparing those two conferences, um, the Franciscan one and the NatCon one, as a way to explore this fissure that had opened up between these two sides of the new right. And then I also ended up talking to a former editor of Compact. It was launched in the spring of 2022. And a short time later, one of its three co-founders, the one who had come from the left, who was a Marxist, he ended up leaving. Edward Aponte, right? Yeah. The idea had been like, we're going to table, or from, from Aponte's perspective, at least, the idea was that they were going to table some of the culture war issues and focus on this kind of shared ground of different economic policies than both kind of the mainstream Democratic and Republican parties are advocating for. And when the Dobbs decision came down, that ended up becoming a pivotal breaking point for them. And as I reported in the piece, Aponte ended up um, having regrets and, and thoughts kind of about what Compact meant as a project. From his perspective, he didn't really doubt the sincerity of the, the push for different economic policies uh, among this band of conservatives. It seemed to him that they were more of a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And that 
the end that they have in mind, he found pretty troubling. People can go read his words for themselves, but it was a really interesting insight into how this fusionist effort had run into trouble pretty early on over where the lines get really blurry and where the lines become really stark when people are trying to make projects that cross political lines. There's a tendency on parts of the left to uh, try to embrace a certain social conservatism or at least shy away from pushing cultural issues uh, in the interest of promoting that economic agenda. I don't know, does Ponte's experience um, with Compact offer a warning for people who are trying to make that move? That's explicitly what he was saying was, he said, and I, I'm paraphrasing now, but you know, that he was pretty explicitly saying, you know, the enemy of my enemy is not always my friend, you know, that you have to pay attention to the devil that's in the details. We're in this interesting moment where there's like a lot of political fluidity in different camps on both the right and the left. And there are some kind of strange bedfellows alliances being made. He offered this warning that he felt a lot of people who had been on the left were getting pulled by by the sort of influence of some of these pretty well-funded right-wing movements that are offering to engage on economic issues that they are being pulled over into sometimes pretty reactionary social positions as well as as a result of those alliances. So I think he was very much offering that kind of warning. And a number of, of other people who have studied previous iterations of these sometimes called third way, you know, approaches, you know, made similar warnings that some of this stuff ends up being quite reactionary. Finally, um, a lot of people have read the uh, results of last month's midterm elections as a repudiation, a uh, popular re- repudiation of this right-wing agenda we've been talking about, particularly all these, these formations. You know, the Peter Thiel's candidate did not do well. Trump's candidates did not do well. Mastriano lost, uh, thank God. Uh, should we be comforted by that? Or are these uh, people just uh, gathering their forces and they'll be back for more? Hard to tell. I mean, not all of Peter Thiel's candidates lost. Um, J.D. Vance did not. Blake Masters did. And J.D. Vance was speaking at this this conference at Franciscan University, um, where his message was, come on, guys, can't we all get along? Um, you know, us on the right, we need to stick together, basically. I don't know. I think when I was looking at responses on the right to the failure of the red wave, I kind of was like, oh, there's there's enough here for anybody to try to to tie their thesis to it and make whatever point they want to make. And they can point to this result or that result. Josh Hawley was one of the people who was doing that. And he said, this failure is the result of Republicans not doing enough to address issues of working class needs. And then this weird formulation, he used working class values, which I think we know what he means by that, um, whether or not that's actually an accurate projection on his part. And there were other people who were saying the same thing. Amari had a New York Times op-ed just after the midterms saying, you know, hey, Republicans spent, you know, the week's running up to the midterms, just gleefully mocking this Starbucks barista who had posted a video detailing the stress of the job. And this is a pretty losing message if, you know, Republicans keep using this phrase that they're going to build a multiracial working class coalition, and that's going to be the new Republican Party. You're not going to get there by by acting like this. So I, I felt like there were arguments to be made on on different fronts. You know, I think it does look like some of the most outrageous, obvious conspiracy theory and culture war extremist candidates lost. Um, But a lot of other candidates who are quite extreme and who are aligned with really extreme movements did not. And I wouldn't rest too easy. Well, also, people seem ready to take up arms if uh, they can't win at the ballot box. Yeah, sure. Here's Catherine Joyce. She covers the right for Salon and the New Republic, and you can find links to all her work on her personal website, Catherine Joyce, that's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E, dot com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Yeah. 
values mean nothing to her. Western values mean nothing to her. She's a girl of argent. She's a girl of argent. She is beyond good and evil. She is beyond good and evil. She is beyond good and evil. She is beyond. That was some of She Is Beyond Good and Evil by the pop group from long ago in 1979. We'll hear another version of that song at the end of the show. Next, tech generally and AI specifically. AI is in the news again, although it seems like it always is, because of a program called ChatGPT. For those of us who traffic in words, this one looks like a pretty big deal. You type a prompt into it and returns a clump of prose or poetry if you ask for it. A Facebook friend asked it to compare Emerson and Nietzsche. It came up with a half-credible product that looks like an intelligence produced it, but the machinery basically reassembles raw material it's found on the web. I asked her to write a bio of myself, and I was partly right, but also got my birth year, birthplace, college, and graduate school wrong. That's failing to leap a pretty low bar. What are we to make of all this, and the claims of AI more generally? What is the culture that produces these apps and the hype around them? And is there something to be said for the much maligned Luddites? To address these issues, here's Edward Ungueso Jr., a staff writer at Vice's Motherboard, where he covers labor, crypto, and the Silicon Valley. Before we talk AI, I'm just kind of curious, you cover Silicon Valley. How would you talk about the worldview or the sensibility that that culture produces? For people on the East Coast, it's a bit of a distant mystery. How do these people think? How do they feel? What drives them? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of factors at play here and a lot of different groups, but I think they're more or less kind of unified in this fanatic, fervent worship of technology and of using technology to optimize, displace, reorganize social relations in ways that are more optimal, which usually means more market-based, more quantification of like transaction costs, more commodification, but also of replacing anything that seems to be inefficient, regardless of whether or not it has you know, that inefficiency is usually just like because it doesn't allow profits or imposes a, a market cost instead of just like, you know, social utility um, or traditions or, or, or things that improve social cohesion, or, you know, stuff that is practical because we're human beings and not market actors. So I'd say a lot of Silicon Valley comes down to, you know, the way that the world is organized is frankly inefficient and undesirable if we're interested in ensuring everybody has as much access to resources as possible in this scarce, in this world of scarcity. The tech bro caricature is a caricature, but uh, it seems pretty well based. I mean, I think it is for the most part, because, I think, I, you know, a lot of these people are coming from backgrounds where the tech bro culture really speaks to how if they have found themselves in finance or if they found themselves in another industry, they would more or less be the same kind of people. Some of them are misanthropic, some of them are going wealthy their whole lives, or their work in Silicon Valley has given them an inordinate amount of wealth and uh, encourages them to, to retreat uh, from reality in, in one way or another and, and encourage uh, solutions or frame things as problems that the rest of us wouldn't see as problems or as solutions. The tech world culture kind of speaks to how a lot of these people are you know, annoying and aggrandizing and have more money than God and don't really know what to do with it besides push a deeply flawed and you know, anti-human point of view onto the rest of us. It seems absolutely Philistine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would say so. I mean, I, you know, a lot of it is deeply offensive to life. And, you know, I think um, <laughs> a lot of the things these people propose, a lot of the things that they pursue are you know, antithetical to, I think, to what we would understand, or maybe they like framed in the first instance and encounter with them as innocent enough. But then when you dig down, it's a lot of uncomfortable ideas about democracy and privacy and surveillance, about individual social worth and who gets access to support, who gets access to resources, who should have power in society. A lot of these are Philistine, like you, like you said. Sometimes people describe the Silicon Valley worldview as libertarian, but it seems like uh, they're most interested in freedom for what they consider the most valuable or most important uh, or best people, and uh, the rest of us be damned. Yeah, you know, I think um, libertarian, I think, 
it's understandable why that's the application. But I think libertarian in the sense that, like, you know, libertarians are people who misunderstand classical liberalism, right? So they adhere to all the, um, Chomsky used to talk a lot about how with right-wing libertarianism, the problem with them is they adhere to the conclusions of classical liberalism, and they insist that private power, specifically state power, is something to be abolished, and we need to maximize autonomy of individuals. But they ignore the reasoning. And the reasoning is important because classical liberals were pre-capitalists when they were reasoning out their theories of power about authority, but they would abhor corporate power too. And for most of these people, they do view corporate power or byproducts as corporate power as ways to free individuals. But more and more, when you look at the individuals they're talking about, they're really just talking about people who look like them, who are in the same class as them, who are in the same part of the world as them, and not humanity or you know even people in the global south or people who are black or brown or people you know anyone who's not in their very narrow social political class well we're getting a really high profile view of one of these characters with musk right now um some of the mystique seems to be wearing off that character yeah you know i think um musk kind of benefited from the vestiges of tech commentary where you know for the first decade or so of silicon valley's ascension in this iteration uh, focused on ICT, focused on these apps and consumer electronics, you know, startups and gig economy stuff, social media, you know, focusing on the stenographer like coverage that a lot of these figures got, and I think has definitely used it as a way to build himself up as this sort of uh, Ubermensch figure who's going to take us to Mars, who's creating things that the world needs, a satellite internet service, uh, electric vehicles at scale. Neuralink or communication between mind and machine, artificial intelligence. But when you dig down, it's really just a guy who has moved from project to project as a way to distract, and also from spectacle to spectacle, as a way to distract from previous scandals that are uprising, profiles of him sexually harassing people, of running incredibly racist workplaces, of, in general, also being a horrible person to his spouses, partners, and his children of uh, manufacturing uh, scandals and, and possible fraud or scandals like uh, around that area and uh, Tesla and, and, you know, subsidies from the government. I mean, so a lot of it boils down to Elon Musk is like, you know, as much a byproduct of the kind of lacks of detail coverage a lot of these figures got as someone who's also taken advantage of it to masquerade as something that he isn't. But now his background in apartheid mining comes out, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, someone he left uh, he left uh, South Africa after 1987 because of certain political events. You know, <laughs> like that would be a coincidence. So this is actually a good segue to what I wanted to talk about. Um, his self-driving Tesla has uh, continually uh, frustrated expectations, and it's always just around the corner, and they never actually get a real full self-driving vehicle. And somehow this is what AI seems to be all about. It's this constant hyped promises that never really live up. Now, uh, the latest uh, version of uh, hyped AI is this chat GPT thing. I asked it to do a bio of me, and it got four major facts wrong like my birthplace, birth year, uh, and my educational history. Um, you know, if it had gotten my favorite beer wrong, that would be a minor detail, but it seemed not to get even major details right. What do you make of this hype over, over the chat GPT? GPT is a good mimic, but that's it. Um, you know, there have been a lot of debates and fear-mongering and hysteria about ChatGPT, right? So the concern here is, you know, we have this AI-powered chatbot that is able to fool humans and could be used to replace human labor, the theory goes, in areas that are word-intensive. So school essays, so uh, job applications, a creation of movie script, writing of articles. But when you dig you know, a little deeper, and you don't really have to push it that much, you know, chat GPT so, shows its cracks. It gets easily searchable things wrong. As the example was, you know, with uh, you asking for a bio, one interesting example was in the Atlantic with Ian Bogost, um, where he, you know, was pressing it to create or recreate poems in certain styles, uh, to have conversations with it. Other people have tried to push it to have conversations with it about physics, for example. And when it's pressed with an inability to be creative or to adhere to one of these technical styles, it just lies. It invents things, it fabricates, but puts them in the form that's familiar to us. 
And I think people are missing here because of the AI modifier, the fact that this is just, you took a large data set of language, you fed it into it, and it's able to kind of mimic it, but it's not thinking. And it's not able to have any sort of internal cognition, nor are we even clear that artificial intelligence could ever do that. For years, AI has always been promised as being around the corner, being the the next big breakthrough. But what you often find with most of these AI systems is it's human labor in the global south being used to train, label, organize the data for the algorithm, for the network that then gets passed off as having created this mimicry system in of itself. We're still waiting to see what else will come out of ChatGPT, but I mean, we've been here before pretty recently with Lambda, which was Google's uh, own, you know, attempt at a large language model, creating some sort of interface that could feasibly use human language. And back then, it was maybe like three months ago, a Google engineer sounded the alarm and insisted that the thing was sentient and everyone laughed at him. And everyone mocked him widely. Um, he was suspended with paid. He was put on paid leave from Google. He was he took his claims to the press. He was and had an at-length interview with the Washington Post. But no one took the claim seriously then. And here we have a model that is definitely not sentient, is publicly accessible, and is able to be manipulated and shown that it has huge limits. But people are getting more hysterical about it. And I think that's largely because of how vague... Uh, the creators of it have been about what it's supposed to be for and also how much propaganda, frankly, we're fed about artificial intelligence every day, year in and year out. I'm speaking with Edward Ungueso Jr., the tech correspondent for Vice's motherboard. But it does uh, serve a useful uh, disciplinary function. It's a way of uh, scaring workforce into uh, submission. Behavior can be replaced by a machine. The, the hype around AI serves a lot of a lot of really important functions in this in our dysfunctional tech system, right? Discipline is a very big one. Instead of creating technology that could increase, or instead of you know solely pursuing technology that increases the productivity of workers, or creating language uh, tools that might amp be used to synergize with and amplify workers, we frame them in ways that they might displace and replace workforces. And that links back to that ideology of Silicon Valley we were talking about, where these people are not really concerned with solutions and outcomes that are socially useful or beneficial. They're concerned with ones that are good for growth and returns and market-based uh, and market-driven um, outcomes uh, or centered outcomes, right? Uh, so we get a lot of talk about tools that are going to replace people instead of tools that are going to amplify the abilities of individuals. Um, we also hear... See that AI is, you know, AI hype has a good function in getting people to let these companies have room and autonomy to do what they want behind closed doors. You know, one reason why this, the sort of artificial intelligence we have, if you step back, like there are mil- there are multiple ways to try and create artificial intelligence. The way that we're doing it is we have large tech companies that privately own all the data all these computing infrastructure, all the algorithms, all the technical know-how, and occasionally trot out an algorithm or a chatbot or um, a network, which they insist is autonomous to a degree and will be able to manage workers, will be able to manage um, or generate language, will be able to manage vehicles, uh, logistics, those two alone, you know, those few factors alone, there's an incentive to keep hyping up AI because it makes an environment that's amicable to, you know, unimpeded flows of capital into the into this industry, into the sector, into startups that want to get acquired, into venture capitalists, and into fund managers that are looking to get above market rate returns by saying, this is the futuristic technology we're building, don't really look under the hood. It serves an important role in a very messed up system that a lot of work also needs to be done to prevent people from stepping back and thinking, like, do we have to do it this way? Is this the only way that we can develop artificial intelligence if that's what we want? It's held up as this god that we have to uh, worship and genuflect in front of. We can't uh, think of it as something that's supposed to serve us. It's going to make demands upon us, and uh, it's just inevitable. 
as are all these technological developments. But it also pilfers an awful lot of human creativity, a lot of human work. I mean, they're stealing the words of other people. They're stealing the art of other people. Uh, when we ever do a CAPTCHA, we're you know, training AI driving. At its base, it's really a, a form of organized theft. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree 100% with that. I mean, I think a lot of when you really dig down and look at how a lot of our technical systems are organized, they're usually organized around the principle that we need to figure out ways to maximize the profits. So usually cutting labor costs without getting people too worked up against it and imposing a huge uh, labor cost or deterring investors and punishing us on the markets or inviting regulation and scrutiny from Congress or from other regulators across the world. And one, and so, you know, one of the ways that you set on doing this is, and also to, you know, keep having it so that the political economy of all of this is privately owned, privately run, privately managed, privately benefited from, you know, and one way to do this is just lie to the public, you know, lie to the public about what it's doing. And, you know, those lies function in a lot of ways. Some of the lies are intentional, maybe by some of these larger companies that insist something is happening when it's not really happening. And other lies come with the culture because these people do believe maybe we're not there yet, but we're getting there. And we just need to continue to galvanize public interest in it. You know, it's not a lie per se to them because they do believe that in 5, 10, 15 years, this certain implementation of artificial intelligence may emerge. But the public is, you know, this bewildering herd that's going to get in the way of technological progress. So we have to, you know, we have to do it ourselves, show them shinies and toys every now and then, herd them along, and then eventually we'll get to the place where all of us will be better off. I saw you describe yourself, like, was it your Twitter bio somewhere? You, you describe yourself as a Luddite. What exactly do you mean? I mean, how much of a joke is that and how serious are you with that? And, you know, what about the Luddites themselves? They do get a bad rap, but uh, is it all deserved? I identify myself as a Luddite partly to troll people because I do work in a, you know, my beat is tech. And, every, and everyone, I think a lot of the people I, I know in the industry like to consider themselves techno-optimists in one way or another, even in the midst of this nightmare that we're in. But for the most part, it is serious, right? Because I do think the Luddites, there's a lot of, um, misinformation and propaganda about what they were, right? You know, the Luddites are typically thought of as, you know, these uh, backward-thinking folk who couldn't abide by technological progress, and they just wanted to stay frozen in a time where we weren't using the most advanced tech to produce the most amount of things in the most efficient way. But the reality is, you know, when you learn about the Luddites, the Luddites were smashing machines that had existed with them for a while, for years at that point. But the only reason they started smashing them was that uh, the machines started to be deployed in a way which would undermine their livelihood, right? Might make them do more work, but get paid less, or replace some of them and, and use and expect more work of them for less, right? And so the campaign by the Luddites to break these mills was uh, a targeted uh, campaign that only targeted at first, you know, machines deployed by uh, people who were interested in that sort of project and not the machines of others who were who were not using them to displace workers or to reduce how much they were getting paid and to make their lives worse, degrade everyone else's labor. And I think that that sort of principle can be rearticulated today as one where, you know, the technology that we have, we don't have to just build something just because we can. Most of the tech that gets developed, designed and financed and deployed is built largely because it can and because it will benefit a narrow group of people. And they have the power to make that happen. We should instead be intentionally and consciously choosing what technologies to develop, what technologies to abandon, what technologies to prohibit, because... We should have a grand theory, an animating idea about what the end of this technology should be for. And I don't think that we have one. What we have is we find things that yield a slightly better outcome in a specific arena, and that's fine. But I think that we should be more intentional. Does, you know, does this technology have the chance of creating a platform which might incentivize genocide? And maybe we should think about how we're going to corral its effects or narrow it or whether it should exist in the first place. Does technology have the ability to you know, ensure that people can be atomized or people can be defrauded or people can be surveilled or, or you know, people can 
you know, be targeted and hurt in specific ways. And maybe we should not pursue its development or figure out guardrails if we are going to. I think most of these questions end up being considered after the fact. And so as a Luddite, I think that the primary thing is tech should be developed if it is going to be in a way that Mac and, and you know, increases the ability of people affected by it to have decisions and how it's going to be run, uh, that it should be usually organized for social ends, you know, and public ends and, 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 and common ends instead of market-driven ones that happen to satisfy some people's needs and wants, and that we should, whenever possible, try to protect specifically human values and, and phenomenon. You know, we should be protecting art. We should be protecting people's creativity. We should be protecting people's leisure. We should be protecting... Also, the things that people need to enjoy these and, and experience these things, whether that's the environment, you know, or whether that is the ability to have a community with one another. And I don't think we have that. What we usually have is technologies that are rolled out by people, sometimes charismatic, sometimes leather skinned, you know, pacing people like Zuck, who um, a vision that sounds good on its face, but when you think about it critically, it's terrifying. And until I think we rediscover or align ourselves with a critical mission like the Luddites did, you know, we're at the behest of tech overlords who are not interested in what you and I are interested. They're interested in what they think at their level, from their bird's eye view, society should be organized around. And I don't think we should have a society where the things that affect every single one of our lives every single day and structure the way that politics happens and social life happens and cultures developed should be decided by the people who also happen to profit from it. It should be by the people who are affected by it. That was Edward Ungueso Jr., a staff writer at Vice's Motherboard, where he covers labor, crypto, and the Silicon Valley. I'll admit to a love of gadgetry, but it's worth recalling Marx's observation that under capitalism, the worker becomes an appendage of the machine, and that the machine acts upon him as an alien power. That is not the vision of a good society. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a cover of the pop group song we heard earlier, She is Beyond Good and Evil. It's by St. Vincent from 2011. Till next week, bye.